BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 7 I meditated pretty freely as I drove to Brinkley in the old two seater that afternoon. The news of this rift or rupture of Angela's and Tuppy's had disturbed me greatly. The projected match, you see, was one on which I had always looked with kindly approval. Too often, when a chap of your acquaintance is planning to marry a girl you know, you find yourself knitting the brow a bit and chewing the lower lip dubiously, feeling that he, or she, or both, should be warned while there is yet time. But I have never felt anything of this nature about Tuppy and Angela. Tuppy, when not making an ass of himself, is a soundish sort of egg, so is Angela a soundish sort of egg. And as far as being in love was concerned, it had always seemed to me that you wouldn't have been far out in describing them as two hearts that beat as one. True, they had their little tiffs, notably on the occasion when Tuppy, with what he said was fearless honesty, and I considered thorough goofiness, had told Angela that her new hat made her look like a Pekingese. But in every romance you have to budget for the occasional dust-up, and after that incident I had supposed that he had learned his lesson and that from now on life would be one grand sweet song. And now this wholly unforeseen severing of diplomatic relations had popped up through a trap. I gave the thing the cream of the Wooster brain all the way down, but it continued to beat me what could have caused the outbreak of hostilities, and I bunged my foot sedulously on the accelerator in order to get to Aunt Dahlia with the greatest possible speed and learn the inside history straight from the horse's mouth. And what, with all six cylinders hitting nicely, I made good time and found myself closeted with the relative shortly before the hour of the evening cocktail. She seemed glad to see me. In fact, she actually said she was glad to see me, a statement no other aunt on the list would have committed herself to, the customary reaction of these near and dear ones to the spectacle of Bertram arriving for a visit being a sort of sick horror. "'Decent of you to rally round, Bertie,' she said. "'My place was by your side, Aunt Dahlia,' I responded. I could see at a G that the unfortunate affair had got in amongst her in no uncertain manner. Her usual cheerful map was clouded, and the genial mile conspic by its A. 
I pressed her hand sympathetically to indicate that my heart bled for her. "'Bad show this, my dear old flesh and blood,' I said. "'I'm afraid you've been having a sticky time. You must be worried.' She snorted emotionally. She looked like an aunt who had just bitten into a bad oyster. "'Worried is right. I haven't had a peaceful moment since I got back from Khan. Ever since I put my foot across this blasted threshold,' said Aunt Dahlia, returning to the nonce to the hearty argot of the hunting field, "'everything's been at sixes and sevens. First there was that mix-up about the prize-giving.' She paused at this point and gave me a look. "'I have been meaning to speak freely to you about your behavior in that matter, Bertie,' she said. "'I had some good things all stored up. But as you've rallied round like this, I suppose I shall have to let you off.' And anyway, it is probably all for the best that you evaded your obligations in that sickeningly craven way. I have an idea that this spink-bottle of yours is going to be good, if only he can keep off the newts. Has he been talking about newts? He has, fixing me with a glittering eye like the ancient mariner. But if that was the worst I had to bear, I wouldn't mind. What I'm worrying about is what Tom says when he starts talking. Uncle Tom? "'I wish there was something else you could call him except Uncle Tom,' said Aunt Dahlia a little testily. "'Every time you do it, I expect to see him turn black and start playing the banjo. "'Yes, Uncle Tom, if you must have it. "'I shall have to tell him soon about losing all that money at Baccarat, "'and when I do, he will go up like a rocket. "'Still, no doubt, time the great heather. "'Time the great heather be blowed. I've got to get a cheque for five hundred pounds out of him for Milady's boudoir by August the third at the latest. I was concerned. Apart from a nephew's natural interest in an aunt's refined weekly paper, I had always had a soft spot in my heart for Milady's boudoir, ever since I contributed that article to it on What the Well-Dressed Man is Wearing. Sentimental, possibly, but we old journalists do have these feelings. Is the boudoir on the rocks? It will be if Tom doesn't cough up. It needs help till it has turned the corner. But wasn't it turning the corner two years ago? It was. And it's still at it. Till you've run a weekly paper for women, you don't know what corners are. And do you think the chances of getting into Uncle, into Uncle by Marriage's ribs are slight? I'll tell you, Bertie. Up till now, when these subsidies were required, I have always been able to come to Tom in the gay, confident spirit of an only child touching an indulgent father for chocolate cream. But he's just had a demand from the income tax people for an additional fifty-eight pounds, one and threepence, and all he's been talking about since I got back has been ruin and the sinister trend of socialist legislation and what will become of us all. I could readily believe it. This Tom has a peculiarity I've noticed in other very oofy men. Nick him for the paltriest sum, and he lets out a squawk you can hear at Land's End. He has the stuff in gobs, but he hates giving it up. If it wasn't for Anatole's cooking, I doubt if he would bother to carry on. Thank God for Anatole, I say. I bowed my head reverently. Good old Anatole, I said. Amen, said Aunt Dahlia. Then the look of holy ecstasy which is always the result of letting the mind dwell, however briefly, on Anatole's cooking, died out of her face. "'But don't let me wander from the subject,' she resumed. "'I was telling you of the way Hell's foundations have been quivering since I got home. First the prize-giving, then Tom, and now on top of everything else, this infernal quarrel between Angela and young Glossop.' 
I nodded gravely. I was frightfully sorry to hear of that. Terrible shock. What was the row about? Sharks. Eh? Sharks. Or rather, one individual shark. The brute that went for the poor child when she was aquaplaning at Cannes. You remember Angela's shark? Certainly I remembered Angela's shark. A man of sensibility does not forget about a cousin nearly being chewed by monsters of the deep. The episode was still green in my memory. In a nutshell, what had occurred was this. You know how you aquaplane. A motorboat nips on ahead, trailing a rope. You stand on a board, holding the rope, and the boat tows you along. And every now and then you lose your grip on the rope and plunge into the sea and have to swim to your board again. A silly process it has always seemed to me, though many find it diverting. Well, on the occasion referred to, Angela had just regained her board after taking a toss when a great beastly shark came along and cannoned into it, flinging her into the salty once more. It took her quite a bit of time to get on again and make the motorboat chap realize what was up and haul her to safety, and during that interval you can readily picture her embarrassment. According to Angela, the finny denizen kept snapping at her ankles virtually without cessation, so that by the time help arrived she was feeling more like a salted almond at a public dinner than anything human. Very shaken the poor child had been, I recall, and had talked of nothing else for weeks. I remember the whole incident vividly, I said. But how did that start the trouble? She was telling him the story last night. Well? Her eyes shining and her little hands clasped in girlish excitement. No doubt. And instead of giving her the understanding and sympathy to which she was entitled, what do you think this blasted glossop did? He sat listening like a lump of dough, as if she had been talking about the weather, and when she had finished he took his cigarette holder out of his mouth and said, I expect it was only a floating log. He didn't. He did. And when Angela described how the thing had jumped and snapped at her, he took his cigarette holder out of his mouth again and said, Ah, probably a flatfish. Quite harmless. No doubt it was just trying to play. Well, I mean, what would you have done if you had been Angela? She has pride, sensibility, all the natural feelings of a good woman. She told him he was an ass and a fool and an idiot, and didn't know what he was talking about. I must say I saw the girl's viewpoint. It's only about once in a lifetime that anything sensational ever happens to one, and when it does you don't want people taking all the color out of it. I remember at school having to read that stuff where that chap Othello tells the girl what a hell of a time he's been having among the cannibals and what not. Well, imagine his feelings, if, after he had described some particularly sticky passage with a cannibal chief and was waiting for the awestruck, oh, not really, she had said that the whole thing had no doubt been greatly exaggerated and that the man had probably really been a prominent local vegetarian. Yes, I saw Angela's point of view. But don't tell me that when he saw how shirty she was about it, the chump didn't back down. He didn't. He argued. And one thing led to another until, by easy stages, they had arrived at the point where she was saying that she didn't know if he was aware of it, but if he didn't knock off starchy foods and do exercises every morning, he would be getting as fat as a pig. And he was talking about this modern habit of girls putting makeup on their faces, of which he had always disapproved. This continued for a while, and then there was a loud pop, and the air was full of mangled fragments of their engagement. I'm distracted about it. Thank goodness you've come, Bertie. 
Nothing could have kept me away, I replied, touched. I felt you needed me. Yes. Quite. Or rather, she said, not you, of course, but Jeeves. The minute all this happened I thought of him. The situation obviously cries out for Jeeves. If ever in the whole history of human affairs there was a moment when that lofty brain was required about the home, this is it. I think if I had been standing up I would have staggered. In fact, I'm pretty sure I would. But it isn't so dashed easy to stagger when you're sitting in an armchair. Only my face, therefore, showed how deeply I had been stung by these words. Until she spoke them, I had been all sweetness and light. The sympathetic nephew prepared to strain every nerve to do his bit. I now froze, and the face became hard and set. "'Jeeves!' I said between clenched teeth. "'Umberufen!' said Aunt Dahlia. I saw that she had got the wrong angle. I was not sneezing. I was saying, "'Jeeves!' "'And well you may. What a man! I'm going to put the whole thing up to him. There's nobody like Jeeves.' My frigidity became more marked. "'I venture to take issue with you, Aunt Dahlia.' "'You take what? Issue. You do, do you?' "'I emphatically do. Jeeves is hopeless.' "'What?' "'Quite hopeless. He has lost his grip completely.' Only a couple of days ago I was compelled to take him off a case because his handling of it was so footling. And anyway, I resent this assumption, if assumption is the word I want, that Jeeves is the only fellow with brain. I object to the way everybody puts things up to him without consulting me and letting me have a stab at them first. She seemed about to speak, but I checked her with a gesture. It is true that in the past I have sometimes seen fit to seek Jeeves's advice. It is possible that in the future I may seek it again, but I claim the right to have a pop at these problems as they arise in person, without having everybody behave as if Jeeves was the only onion in the hash. I sometimes feel that Jeeves, though admittedly not unsuccessful in the past, has been lucky rather than gifted. Have you and Jeeves had a row? Nothing of the kind. You seem to have it in for him. Not at all and yet I must admit there was a modicum of truth in what she said. I had been feeling pretty austere about the man all day, and I'll tell you why. You remember that he caught the 1245 train with the luggage, while I remained on in order to keep a luncheon engagement? Well, just before I started out to the tryst, I was puttering about the flat, and suddenly, I don't know what put the suspicion into my head, possibly the fellow's manner had been furtive, Something seemed to whisper to me to go and have a look in the wardrobe. And it was as I had expected. There was the mess-jacket, still on its hanger. The hound hadn't packed it. Well, as anybody at the drones will tell you, Bertram Wooster is a pretty hard chap to out-general. I shoved the thing in a brown paper parcel and put it in the back of the car, and it was on a chair in the hall now. But that didn't alter the fact that Jeeves had attempted to do the dirty on me, and I suppose a certain what-do-you-call-it had crept into my manner during the above remarks. "'There has been no breach,' I said. "'You might describe it as a passing coolness, but no more. We did not happen to see eye to eye with regard to my white mess-jacket with the brass buttons, and I was compelled to assert my personality. But, well, it doesn't matter anyway.' The thing that matters is that you are talking piffle, you poor fish. Jeeves lost his grip? Absurd. Why, I saw him for a moment when he arrived, and his eyes were absolutely glittering with intelligence. I said to myself, trust Jeeves, and I intend to. 
You would be far better advised to let me see what I can accomplish, Aunt Dahlia. For heaven's sake, don't you start butting in. You'll only make matters worse. On the contrary, it may interest you to know that while driving here I concentrated deeply on this trouble of Angela's and was successful in formulating a plan, based on the psychology of the individual, which I am proposing to put into effect at an early moment. Oh, my God! My knowledge of human nature tells me it will work. Bertie, said Aunt Dahlia, and her manner struck me as febrile, lay off, lay off, for pity's sake, lay off. I know these plans of yours. I suppose you want to shove Angela into the lake and push young Glossop in to save her life or something like that. Nothing of the kind. It's the sort of thing you would do. My scheme is far more subtle. Let me outline it for you. No thanks. I say to myself, but not to me. Do listen for a second. I won't. Right-ho, then. I am dumb, and have been from a child. I perceived that little good could result from continuing the discussion. I waved a hand and shrugged a shoulder. Very well, Aunt Dahlia, I said with dignity. If you don't want to be in on the ground floor, that is your affair. But you are missing an intellectual treat. And anyway, no matter how much you may behave like the deaf adder of Scripture, which, as you are doubtless aware, the more one piped, the less it danced, or words to that effect, I shall carry on as planned. I am extremely fond of Angela, and I shall spare no effort to bring the sunshine back into her heart. Bertie, you abysmal chump, I appeal to you once more. Will you please lay off? You'll only make things ten times as bad as they already are. I remember reading in one of those historical novels once about a chap. A buck he would have been, no doubt, or a macaroni, or some such bird as that, who, when people said the wrong thing, merely laughed down from lazy eyelids and flicked a speck of dust from the irreproachable Mechlin lace at his wrists. This was practically what I did now. At least I straightened my tie and smiled one of those inscrutable smiles of mine. I then withdrew and went out for a saunter in the garden. And the first chap I ran into was young Tuppy. His brow was furrowed, and he was moodily bunging stones at a flower-pot. End of chapter 7「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 8 I think I have told you before about young Tuppy Glossop. He was the fellow, if you remember, who, callously ignoring the fact that we had been friends since boyhood, betted me one night at the drones that I could swing myself across the swimming bath by the rings, a childish feat for one of my lissomeness, and then, having seen me well on the way, looped back the last ring, thus rendering it necessary for me to drop into the deep end in formal evening costume. To say that I had not resented this foul deed, which seemed to me deserving of the title of the crime of the century, would be paltering with the truth. I had resented it profoundly, chafing not a little at the time, and continuing to chafe for some weeks. But you know how it is with these things. The wound heals, the agony abates. 
I am not saying, mind you, that had the opportunity presented itself of dropping a wet sponge on Tuppy from some high spot, or of putting an eel in his bed, or finding some other form of self-expression of a like nature, I would have not embraced it eagerly. But that let me out. I mean to say, grievously injured though I had been, it gave me no pleasure to feel that the fellow's ballied life was being ruined by the loss of a girl, whom, despite all that had passed, I was convinced he still loved like the Dickens. On the contrary, I was heart and soul in favor of healing the breach and rendering everything hotsy-totsy once more between these two young sundered blighters. You will have gleaned that from my remarks to Aunt Dahlia, and if you had been present at this moment and seen the kindly, commiserating look I gave Tuppy, you would have gleaned it still more. It was one of those searching, melting looks, and was accompanied by the hearty clasp of the right hand and the gentle laying of the left on the collarbone. "'Well, Tuppy, old man,' I said, "'how are you, old man?' My commiseration deepened as I spoke the words, for there had been no lighting up of the eye, no answering pressure of the palm, no sign whatever, in short, of any disposition on his part to do spring dances at the sight of an old friend. The man seemed sandbagged. Melancholy, as I remember Jeeves saying once about Pongo Twistleton when he was trying to knock off smoking, had marked him for her own. Not that I was surprised, of course. In the cirques, no doubt, a certain moodiness was only natural. I released the hand, ceased to knead the shoulder, and producing the old case, offered him a cigarette. He took it dully. "'Are you here, Bertie?' he asked. "'Yes, I'm here.' just passing through or come to stay. I thought for a moment. I might have told him that I had arrived at Brinkley Court with the express intention of bringing Angela and himself together once more, of knitting up the severed threads, and so on and so forth, and for perhaps half the time required for the lighting of a gasper, I had almost decided to do so. Then, I reflected, better on the whole, perhaps not to broadcast the fact that I proposed to take him and Angela and play on them as a couple of stringed instruments might have been injudicious. Chaps don't always like being played on as on a stringed instrument. "'It all depends,' I said. "'I may remain. I may push on. My plans are uncertain.' He nodded listlessly, rather in the manner of a man who did not give a damn what I did, and stood gazing out over the sunlit garden. In build and appearance, Tuppy somewhat resembles a bulldog, and his aspect now was that of one of these fine animals who had just been refused a slice of cake. It was not difficult for a man of my discernment to read what was in his mind, and it occasioned me no surprise, therefore, when his next words had to do with the subject marked with a cross on the agenda paper. "'You've heard of this business of mine, I suppose, me and Angela?' I have indeed, Tuppy, old man. We've busted up. I know. Some little friction, I gather, in Ray, Angela's shark? Yes. I said it must have been a flatfish. So my informant told me. Who did you hear it from? Aunt Dahlia. I suppose she cursed me properly. Oh, no. Beyond referring to you in one passage as this blasted glossop, 
She was, I thought, singularly temperate in her language for a woman who at one time hunted regularly with the corn. All the same, I could see, if you don't mind me saying so, old man, that she felt you might have behaved with a little more tact. Tact! And I must admit, I rather agreed with her. Was it nice, Tuppy? Was it quite kind to take the bloom off Angela's shark like that? You must remember that Angela's shark is very dear to her. Could you not see what a sock on the jaw it would be for the poor child to hear it described by the man to whom she had given her heart as a flatfish? I saw that he was struggling with some powerful emotion. And what about my side of the thing? he demanded in a voice choked with feeling. Your side? You don't suppose, said Tuppy with rising vehemence, that I would have exposed this dashed synthetic shark for the flat fish it undoubtedly was if there had not been causes that led up to it? What induced me to speak as I did was the fact that Angela, the little squirt, had just been most offensive, and I seized the opportunity to get a bit of my own back. Offensive? Exceedingly offensive. Purely on the strength of my having let fall some casual remark, simply by way of saying something and keeping the conversation going, to the effect that I wondered what Anatole was going to give us for dinner. She said that I was too material, and ought not to always be thinking of food. Material my elbow. As a matter of fact, I'm particularly spiritual. Quite. I don't see any harm in wondering what Anatole was going to give us for dinner, do you? Of course not. A mere ordinary tribute of respect to a great artist. Exactly. All the same. Well, I was only going to say that it seems a pity that the frail craft of love should come to a stinker like this when a few manly words of contrition. He stared at me. You aren't suggesting that I should climb down. It would be a fine big thing, old egg. I wouldn't dream of climbing down. But, Tuppy, no, I wouldn't do it. But you love her, don't you? This touched the spot. He quivered noticeably, and his mouth twisted. Quite the tortured soul. I'm not saying I don't love the little blighter, he said, obviously moved. I love her passionately. But that doesn't alter the fact that I consider that what she needs most in this world is a swift kick in the pants. A wooster could scarcely pass this. Tuppy, old man! It's no good saying, Tuppy, old man! Well, I do say, Tuppy, old man. Your tone shocks me. One raises the eyebrows. Where is the fine, old, chivalrous spirit of the Glossops? That's all right about the fine, old, chivalrous spirit of the Glossops. Where is the sweet, gentle, womanly spirit of the Angelus? Telling a fellow he was getting a double chin... Did she do that? She did. Oh, well, girls will be girls. Forget it, Tuppy. Go to her and make it up. He shook his head. No, it is too late. Remarks have been passed about my tummy which it is impossible to overlook. But, Tommy, uh, Tuppy, I mean, be fair. You once told her her new hat made her look like a Pekingese. It did make her look like a Pekingese. That was not vulgar abuse. It was sound, constructive criticism, with no motive behind it 
but the kindly desire to keep her from making an exhibition of herself in public. Wantonly to accuse a man of puffing when he goes up a flight of stairs is something very different. I began to see that the situation would require all my address and ingenuity. If the wedding bells were ever to ring out in the little church of Market Snodsbury, Bertram had plainly got to put in some shrewdish work. I had gathered, during my conversation with Aunt Dahlia, that there had been a certain amount of frank speech between the two contracting parties, but I had not realized till now that matters had gone so far. The pathos of the thing gave me the pip. Tuppy had admitted in so many words that love still animated the Glossop bosom, and I was convinced that even after all that occurred, Angela had not ceased to love him. At the moment, no doubt, she might be wishing that she could hit him with a bottle, but deep down in her I was prepared to bet that there still lingered all the old affection and tenderness. Only injured pride was keeping these two apart, and I felt that if Tuppy would make the first move, all would be well. I had another whack at it. "'She's broken-hearted about this rift, Tuppy.' "'How do you know? Have you seen her?' "'No, but I'll bet she is. She doesn't look it.' "'Wearing the mask, no doubt. Jeeves does that when I assert my authority.' She wrinkles her nose at me as if I were a drain that had gone out of order. "'Merely the mask. I feel convinced she still loves you, and that a kindly word from you is all that is required.' I could see that this had moved him. He plainly wavered. He did a sort of twiddly on the turf with his foot, and when he spoke, one spotted the tremolo in his voice. "'You really think that?' "'Absolutely!' Hmm. "'If you were to go to her—' he shook his head. "'I can't do that. It would be fatal. Bing! Instantly would go my prestige. I know girls. Grovel and the best of them get uppish,' he mused. The only way to work the thing would be by tipping her off in some indirect way that I am prepared to open negotiations. Should I sigh a bit when we meet, do you think? She would think you were puffing. That's true. I lit another cigarette and gave my mind to the matter. And first crack out of the box, as is so often the way with the Woosters, I got an idea. I remembered the counsel I had given Gussie in the matter of the sausages and ham. I've got it, Tuppy. There is one infallible method of indicating to a girl that you love her, and it works just as well when you've had a row and want to make it up. Don't eat any dinner tonight. You can see how impressive that would be. She knows how devoted you are to food. He started violently. I am not devoted to food. No, no, I am not devoted to food at all. "'Quite all I meant, this rot about me being devoted to food,' said Tuppy warmly, "'has got to stop. I am young and healthy and have a good appetite, but that's not the same as being devoted to food. I admire Anatole as a master of his craft, and am always willing to consider anything he may put before me. But when you say I am devoted to food, quite, quite, all I meant was that if she sees you push your dinner away untasted, she will realize that your heart is aching and will probably be the first to suggest blowing the all clear. Tuppy was frowning thoughtfully. Push my dinner away, eh? Yes. 
push away a dinner cooked by Anatole. Yes. Push it away untasted. Yes. Let us get this straight. Tonight at dinner, when the butler offers me a redevot de la fincière, or whatever it may be, hot from Anatole's hands, you wish me to push it away untasted. Yes. He chewed his lip. One could sense the struggle going on within. And then, suddenly, a sort of glow came into his face. The old martyrs probably used to look like that. All right. You'll do it? I will. Fine! Of course, it will be agony. I pointed out the silver lining. Only for the moment. You could slip down tonight, after everyone is in bed, and raid the larder. He brightened. That's right. I could, couldn't I? I expect there would be something cold there. There is something cold there, said Tuppy, with growing cheerfulness. A steak and kidney pie. We had had it for lunch today. One of Anatole's ripest. The thing I admire about that man, said Tuppy reverently, the thing that I admire so enormously about Anatole is that, though a Frenchman, he does not, like so many of these chefs, confine himself exclusively to French dishes, but is always willing and ready to weigh in with some good old simple English fare such as this steak-and-kidney pie to which I have alluded. A masterly pie, Bertie, and it wasn't more than half finished. It will do me nicely. And at dinner you will push as arranged? Absolutely as arranged. Fine. It's an excellent idea. One of Jeeves's best. You can tell him from me when you see him that I'm much obliged. The cigarette fell from my fingers. It was as though somebody had slapped Bertram Wooster across the face with a wet dishrag. You aren't suggesting that you think this scheme I have been sketching out is Jeeves's? Of course it is. It's no good trying to kid me, Bertie. You wouldn't have thought of a wheeze like that in a million years. There was a pause. I drew myself up to my full height, then, seeing that he wasn't looking at me, lowered myself again. Come, Glossop, I said coldly. We had better be going. It's time we were dressing for dinner. End of chapter 8This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Write Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 9. Tuppy's fat headed words were still rankling in my bosom as I went up to my room. They continued rankling as I shed the form-fitting, and had not ceased to rankle when, clad in the old dressing-gown, I made my way along the corridor to the salle de bain. It's not too much to say that I was piqued to the tonsils. I mean to say one does not court praise. The adulation of the multitude means very little to one. But all the same, when one has taken the trouble to whack out a highly juicy scheme to benefit an in-the-soup friend in his hour of travail, it's pretty foul to find him giving the credit to one's personal attendant, particularly if that personal attendant is a man who goes about the place not packing mess-jackets. But after I had been splashing about in the porcelain for a bit, 
composure began to return. I have always found that in moments of heart-bowed-downness there is nothing that calms the bruised spirit like a good go at the soap and water. I don't say I actually sang in the tub, but there were times when it was a mere spin of the coin whether I would do so or not. The spiritual anguish induced by that tactless speech had become noticeably lessened. The discovery of a toy duck in a soap-dish, presumably the property of some former juvenile visitor, contributed not a little to this new and happier frame of mind. What with one thing and another, I hadn't played with toy ducks in my bath for years, and I found the novel experience most invigorating. For the benefit of those interested, I may mention that if you shove the thing under the surface with the sponge and then let it go, it shoots out of the water in a manner calculated to divert the most careworn. Ten minutes of this, and I was enabled to return to the bedchamber much more the old Mary Bertram. Jeeves was there, laying out the dinner disguise. He greeted the young master with his customary suavity. "'Good evening, sir.' I responded in the same affable key. "'Good evening, Jeeves.' "'I trust you had a pleasant drive, sir.' "'Very pleasant, thank you, Jeeves. Hand me a sock or two, will you?' He did so, and I commenced to don. "'Well, Jeeves,' I said, reaching for the underlinen, "'here we are again at Brinkley Court in the county of Worcestershire. "'Yes, sir. "'A nice mess things seem to have gone and got themselves into in this rustic joint. "'Yes, sir. "'The rift between Tuppy Glossop and my cousin Angela would appear to be serious. "'Yes, sir. "'Opinion in the servants' hall is inclined to take a grave view of the situation.' And the thought that springs to your mind, no doubt, is that I shall have my work cut out to fix things up. Yes, sir. You are wrong, Jeeves. I have the thing well in hand. You surprise me, sir. I thought I should. Yes, Jeeves, I pondered on the matter most of the way down here, and with the happiest results. I have just been in conference with Mr. Glossop, and everything is taped out. Indeed, sir. Might I inquire... You, you know my methods, Jeeves. Apply them. Have you, I asked, slipping into the shirt and starting to adjust the cravat, been gnawing on the thing at all? Oh, yes, sir. I have always been much attached to Miss Angela, and I felt that it would afford me great pleasure were I to be able to be of service to her. A laudable sentiment, but I suppose you drew blank? No, sir. I was rewarded with an idea. What was it? It occurred to me that a reconciliation might be effected between Mr. Glossop and Miss Angela by appealing to that instinct which prompts gentlemen in time of peril to hasten to the rescue of I had to let go of the cravat in order to raise a hand. I was shocked. Don't tell me you were contemplating descending to that old he-saved-her-from-drowning gag. I am surprised, Jeeves, surprised and pained. When I was discussing the matter with Aunt Dahlia on my arrival, she said in a sniffy sort of way that she supposed I was going to shove my cousin Angela into the lake and push Tuppy in to haul her out, and I let her see pretty clearly that I considered the suggestion an insult to my intelligence. And now, if your words have the meaning I read into them, you are mooting precisely the same driveling scheme. Really, Jeeves? No, sir, not that. But the thought did cross my mind, as I walked in the grounds and passed the building where the fire-bell hangs, that a sudden alarm of fire in the night might result in Mr. Glossop endeavouring to assist Miss Angela to safety. 
I shivered. Rotten, Jeeves. Well, sir, no good, not a bit like it. I fancy, sir, no, Jeeves, no more. Enough has been said. Let us drop the subj. I finished tying the tie in silence. My emotions were too deep for speech. I knew, of course, that this man had for the time being lost his grip, but I had never suspected that he had gone absolutely to pieces like this. Remembering some of the swift ones he had pulled in the past, I shrank with horror from the spectacle of his present ineptitude. Or is it ineptness? I mean this frightful disposition of his to stick straws in his hair and talk like a perfect ass. It was the old, old story, I supposed. A man's brain whizzes along for years, exceeding the speed limit, and something suddenly goes wrong with the steering gear, and it skids and comes to a smeller in the ditch. A bit elaborate, I said, trying to put the thing in as kindly a light as possible. You're old failing. You can see that it's a bit elaborate. Possibly the plan I suggested might be considered open to that criticism, sir, but faute de mieux. I don't get you, Jeeves. A French expression, sir, signifying for want of anything better. A moment before I had been feeling for this wreck of a once fine thinker nothing but gentle pity. These words jarred the Wooster pride, inducing asperity. I understand perfectly well what Fautemur means, Jeeves. I did not recently spend two months among our Gallic neighbors for nothing. Besides, I remember that one from school. What caused my bewilderment was that you should be employing the expression, well knowing that there is no belly Fautemur about it at all. Where did you get that Fautemur stuff? Didn't I tell you I had everything taped out? Yes, sir, but... What do you mean, but? Well, sir, push on, Jeeves. I am ready, even anxious, to hear your views. Well, sir, if I may take the liberty of reminding you of it, your plans in the past have not always been uniformly successful. There was a silence, rather a throbbing one, during which I put on my waistcoat in a marked manner. Not till I had got the buckle at the back satisfactorily adjusted did I speak. "'It is true, Jeeves,' I said formally, "'that once or twice in the past I may have missed the bus. "'This, however, I attribute purely to bad luck.' "'Indeed, sir. "'In the present occasion I shall not fail, "'and I'll tell you why I shall not fail, "'because my scheme is rooted in human nature.' "'Indeed, sir. "'It is simple, not elaborate, "'and furthermore based on the psychology of the individual.' "'Indeed, sir.' "'Jeeves,' I said, "'don't keep saying, "'Indeed, sir. "'No doubt nothing is further from your mind "'than to convey such a suggestion, "'but you have a way of stressing the in "'and then coming down with a thud on the deed, "'which makes it virtually tantamount to, "'Oh, yeah?' "'Correct this, Jeeves. "'Very good, sir. "'I tell you I have everything nicely lined up. "'Would you care to hear what steps I have taken?' "'Very much, sir.' Then listen. Tonight at dinner I have recommended Tuppy to lay off the food. Sir? Tut, Jeeves, surely you can follow the idea, even though it is one that would never have occurred to yourself. Have you forgotten the telegram I sent to Gussie Finknoddle, steering him away from the sausages and ham? This is the same thing. Pushing the food away untasted is a universally recognized sign of love. It cannot fail to bring home the gravy. You must see that. 
Well, sir, I frowned. I don't want to seem always to be criticizing your methods of voice production, Jeeves, I said, but I must inform you that well, sir, of yours is in many respects fully as unpleasant as your indeed, sir. Like the latter, it seems to be tinged with a definite skepticism. It suggests a lack of faith in my vision. The impression I retain after hearing you shoot it at me a couple of times is that you consider me to be talking through the back of my neck, and that only a futile sense of what is fitting restrains you from substituting for it the words, says you. Oh, no, sir. Well, that's what it sounds like. Why don't you think this scheme will work? I fear Miss Angela will merely attribute Mr. Glossop's abstinence to indigestion, sir. I hadn't thought of that and I must confess it shook me for a moment. Then I recovered myself. I saw what was at the bottom of all of this. Mortified by the consciousness of his own ineptness, or ineptitude, the fellow was simply trying to hamper and obstruct. I decided to knock the stuffing out of him without further preamble. Oh, I said, you do, do you? Well, be that as it may, it doesn't alter the fact that you've put out the wrong coat. "'Be so good, Jeeves,' I said, indicating with a gesture the gent's ordinary dinner-jacket, or smoking, as we call it on the Côte d'Azur, which was suspended from the hanger on the knob of the wardrobe. "'As to shove that bally black thing in the cupboard and bring out my white mess-jacket with the brass buttons.' He looked at me in a meaning manner, and when I said a meaning manner, I mean there was a respectful but at the same time uppish glint in his eye, and a sort of muscular spasm flickered across his face, which wasn't quite a quiet smile, and yet wasn't quite not a quiet smile. Also the soft cough. I regret to say, sir, that I inadvertently omitted to pack the garment to which you refer. The vision of that parcel in the hall seemed to rise before my eyes, and I exchanged a merry wink with it. I may even have hummed a bar or two. I'm not quite sure. I know you did, Jeeves, I said, laughing down from lazy eyelids and nicking a speck of dust from the irreproachable Mechlin lace at my wrists. But I didn't. You will find it on a chair in the hall in a brown paper parcel. The information that his low maneuvers had been rendered null and void, and that the thing was on the strength after all, must have been the nastiest of jars, but there was no play of expression on his finely chiselled to indicate it. There very seldom is on Jeeves's F.C. In moments of discomfort, as I had told Tuppy, he wears a mask, preserving throughout the quiet stolidity of a stuffed moose. "'You might just slide down and fetch it, will you?' "'Very good, sir. Right ho, Jeeves!' And presently I was sauntering towards the drawing-room, with me good old Jay nestling snugly abaft the shoulder-blades. And Dahlia was in the drawing-room. She glanced up at my entrance. "'Hullo, eyesore,' she said. "'What do you think you're made up as?' I did not get the purport. "'The jacket, you mean?' I queried, groping. "'I do. You look like one of the chorus of male guests at Abernethy Towers, in Act Two of a touring musical comedy. You do not admire this jacket? I do not. You did it can. Well, this isn't can. But, dash it! Oh, never mind. Let it go. If you want to give my butler a laugh, what does it matter? What does anything matter now? 
There was a death-where-is-thy-sting-fullness about her manner which I found distasteful. It isn't often that I score off Jeeves in the devastating fashion just described, and when I do I like to see happy, smiling faces about me. "'Tails up, Aunt Dahlia,' I urged buoyantly. "'Tails up be dashed,' was her somber response. "'I've just been talking to Tom.' "'Telling him?' "'No, listening to him. I haven't had the nerve to tell him yet.' Is he still upset about that income tax money? Upset is right. He says that civilization is in the melting pot and that all thinking men can read the writing on the wall. What wall? Old Testament ass, Belshazzar's feast. Oh, that, yes. I've always wondered how that gag was worked. With mirrors, I expect. I wish I could use mirrors to break it to Tom about this Baccarat business. I had a word of comfort to offer here. I had been turning the thing over in my mind since our last meeting, and I thought I saw where she had got twisted. Where she made her error, it seemed to me, was in feeling she had to tell Uncle Tom. To my way of thinking, the matter was one on which it would be better to continue to exercise a quiet reserve. I don't see why you need mention that you lost that money at Baccarat. What do you suggest, then? Letting Milady's boudoir join civilization in the melting pot? Because that is what we'll infallibly do unless I get a check by next week. The printers have been showing a nasty spirit for months. You don't follow. Listen, it's an understood thing, I take it, that Uncle Tom foots the boudoir bills. If the bally sheet has been turning the corner for two years, he must have got used to forking out by this time. Well, simply ask him for the money to pay the printers. I did just before I went to Cannes. Wouldn't he give it to you? Certainly he gave it to me. He brassed up like an officer and a gentleman. That was the money I lost at Baccarat. Oh, I didn't know that. There isn't much you do know. A nephew's love made me overlook the slur. Tut, I said. What did you say? I said tut. Say it once again and I'll biff you where you stand. I've enough to endure without being tutted at. Quite. Any tutting that's required, I'll attend to it myself. And the same applies to clicking the tongue if you are thinking of doing that. Far from it. Good. I stood a while in thought. I was concerned to the core. My heart, if you remember, had already bled once for Aunt Dahlia this evening. It now bled again. I knew how deeply attached she was to this paper of hers, Seeing it go down the drain would be for her like watching a loved child sink for the third time in some pond or mere, and there was no question that unless carefully prepared for the touch, Uncle Tom would see a hundred milady's boudoirs go futt rather than take the rap. Then I saw how the thing could be handled. This aunt, I perceived, must fall into line with my other clients. Tuppy Glossop was knocking off dinner to melt Angela. Gussie Finknottle was knocking off dinner to impress the Bassett. Aunt Dahlia must knock off dinner to soften Uncle Tom. For the beauty of this scheme of mine was that there was no limit to the number of entrants. Come one, come all, the more the merrier, and satisfaction guaranteed in every case. I've got it, I said. There is only one course to pursue. Eat less meat. She looked at me in a pleading sort of way. I wouldn't swear that her eyes were wet with unshed tears, but I rather think they were, 
Certainly she clasped her hands in piteous appeal. "'Must you drivel, Bertie? Won't you stop it just this once? Just for tonight, to please Aunt Dahlia?' "'I'm not driveling. I dare to say that to a man of your high standards it doesn't come under the head of drivel, but I saw what had happened. I hadn't made myself quite clear.' "'It's all right,' I said. I have no misgivings. This is the real Tabasco. When I said eat less meat, what I meant was that you must refuse your oats at dinner tonight. Just sit there, looking blistered, and wave away each course as it comes with a weary gesture of resignation. You see what will happen. Uncle Tom will notice your loss of appetite, and I am prepared to bet that at the conclusion of the meal he will come to you and say, Dahlia, darling, I take it he calls you Dahlia. Dahlia, darling, he will say, I noticed at dinner tonight that you were a bit off your feed. Is anything the matter, Dahlia, darling? Why, yes, Tom, darling, you will reply. It is kind of you to ask, darling. The fact is, darling, I am terribly worried. My darling, he will say... Aunt Dahlia interrupted at this point to observe that these traverses seemed to be a pretty soppy couple of blighters, to judge by their dialogue. She also wished to know when I was going to get to the point. I gave her a look. My darling, he will say tenderly, is there anything I can do? To which your reply will be that there jolly well is, viz, reach for his checkbook and start writing. I was watching her closely as I spoke, and was pleased to note respect suddenly dawn in her eyes. But, Bertie, this is positively bright. I told you Jeeves wasn't the only fellow with a brain. I believe it would work. It's bound to work. I've recommended it to Tuppy. Young Glossop? In order to soften Angela. Splendid. And to Gussie Finknoddle, who wants to make a hit with the Bassett. Well, 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 what a busy little brain it is. Always working, Aunt Dahlia, always working. You're not the chump I took you for, Bertie. When did you ever take me for a chump? Oh, sometime last summer. I forget what gave me the idea. Yes, Bertie, this scheme is bright. I suppose, as a matter of fact, Jeeves suggested it. Jeeves did not suggest it. I resent these implications. Jeeves had nothing to do with it whatsoever. Well, all right, no need to get excited about it. Yes, I think it will work. Tom's devoted to me. Who wouldn't be? I'll do it. And then the rest of the party trickled in, and we toddled down to dinner. Conditions being as they were at Brinkley Court, I mean to say, the place being loaded down above the plimsoll mark with aching hearts and standing room only as regarded tortured souls, I hadn't expected the evening meal to be particularly effervescent. Nor was it. Silent, somber, the whole thing more than a bit like Christmas dinner on Devil's Island. I was glad when it was over. What with having, on top of her other troubles, to rein herself back from the trough, Aunt Dahlia was a total loss as far as anything in the shape of brilliant badinage was concerned. The fact that he was fifty quid in the red and expecting civilization to take a toss at any moment had caused Uncle Tom, who always looked a bit like a pterodactyl with a secret sorrow, to take on a deeper melancholy. The Bassett was a silent bread crumbler. Angela might have been hewn from the living rock. 
Tuppy had the air of a condemned murderer refusing to make the usual hearty breakfast before tooling off to the execution shed. And, as for a Gussie Ficknoddle, many an experienced undertaker would have been deceived by his appearance and started embalming him on sight. This was the first glimpse I had had of Gussie since we parted at my flat, and I must say his demeanor disappointed me. I had been expecting something a great deal more sparkling. At my flat, on the occasion alluded to, he had, if you recall, practically given me a signed guarantee that all he needed to touch him off was a rural setting. Yet, in his aspect now, I could detect no indication whatsoever that he was about to round into mid-season form. He still looked like a cat in an adage, and it did not take me long to realize that my very first act on escaping from this morgue must be to draw him aside and give him a pep-talk. If ever a chap wanted the clarion note, it looked as if it was this finknoddle. In the general exodus of mourners, however, I lost sight of him, and owing to the fact that Aunt Dahlia roped me in for a game of backgammon, it was not immediately that I was able to institute a search. But after we had been playing for a while, the butler came in and asked her if she would speak to Anatole, so I managed to get away. And some ten minutes later, having failed to find scent in the house, I started to throw out the dragnet through the grounds, and flushed him in the rose garden. He was smelling a rose at the moment in a limp sort of way, but removed the beak as I approached. "'Well, Gussie,' I said. I had beamed genially upon him as I spoke, such being my customary policy on meeting an old pal, but instead of beaming back genially, he gave me a most unpleasant look. His attitude perplexed me. It was as if he were not glad to see Bertram. For a moment he stood letting this unpleasant look play upon me, as it were, and then he spoke. You and your well, Gussie. He said this between clenched teeth, always an unmatey thing to do, and I found myself more fogged than ever. How do you mean, me and my well, Gussie? I like your nerve, coming bounding about the place, saying, well, Gussie. That's about all the well, Gussie, I shall require from you, Wooster. And it's no good looking like that. You know what I mean. That damned prize-giving. It was a dastardly act to crawl out as you did and shove it off onto me. I will not mince my words. It was the act of a hound and a stinker. Now, though, as I have shown, I had devoted most of the time on the journey down to meditating upon the case of Angela and Tuppy, I had not neglected to give a thought or two to what I was going to say when I encountered Gussie. I had foreseen that there might be some little temporary unpleasantness when we met, and when a difficult interview is in the offing, Bertram Wooster likes to have his story ready. So now I was able to reply with a manly, disarming frankness. The sudden introduction of the topic had given me a bit of a jolt, it is true, for in the stress of recent happenings, I had rather let that prize-giving business slide to the back of my mind, but I had speedily recovered and, as I say, was able to reply with a manly D.F. But, my dear chap, I said, I took it for granted that you would understand that that was all part of my schemes. He said something about my schemes which I did not catch. Absolutely. Crawling out is entirely the wrong way to put it. You don't suppose I didn't want to distribute those prizes, do you? Left to myself, there is nothing I would find a greater treat. But I saw that the square, generous thing to do was to step aside and let you take it on, so I did so. 
I felt that your need was greater than mine. You don't mean to say you aren't looking forward to it. He uttered a coarse expression which I wouldn't have thought he would have known. It just shows that you can bury yourself in the country and still somehow acquire a vocabulary. No doubt one picks up things from the neighbors, the vicar, the local doctor, the man who brings the milk, and so on. But, dash it, I said, can't you see what this is going to do for you? It will send your stock up with a jump. There you will be, up on that platform, a romantic, impressive figure, the star of the whole proceedings, the what-do-you-call-it-of-all-eyes. Madeline Bassett will be all over you. She will see you in a totally new light. She will, will she? Certainly she will. Augustus Finknoddle, the newt's friend, she knows. She is acquainted with Augustus Finknoddle, the dog's chiropodist. But Augustus Finknoddle, the orator, that'll knock her sideways, or I know nothing of the female heart. Girls go potty over a public man. If ever anyone did anyone else a kindness, it was I when I gave this extraordinary attractive assignment to you. He seemed impressed by my eloquence. Couldn't have helped myself, of course. The fire faded from behind his horn-rimmed spectacles, and in his place appeared the old fish-like goggle. Yes, he said meditatively. Have you ever made a speech, Bertie? Dozens of times. It's pie. Nothing to it. Why, I once addressed a girl's school. You weren't nervous? Not a bit. How did you go? They hung on my lips. I held them in the hollow of my hand. They didn't throw eggs or anything? Not a thing. He expelled a deep breath, and for a space stood staring in silence at a passing slug. Well, he said at length, it may be all right. Possibly I'm letting the thing prey on my mind too much. I may be wrong in supposing in the fate that is worse than death, but I'll tell you this much. The prospect of that prize-giving on the 31st of this month has been turning my existence into a nightmare. I haven't been able to sleep or think or eat. By the way, that reminds me. You never explained that cipher telegram about the sausages and ham. It wasn't a cipher telegram. I wanted you to go light on the food so that she would realize you were in love. He laughed hollowly. I see. Well, I've been doing that all right. Yes, I was noticing at dinner. Splendid. I don't see what's splendid about it. It's not going to get me anywhere. I shall never be able to ask her to marry me. I couldn't find nerve to do that if I lived on wafer biscuits for the rest of my life. But, dash it, Gussie, in these romantic surroundings, I should have thought the whispering trees alone. I don't care what you would have thought. I can't do it. Oh, come. I can't. She seems so aloof so remote. She doesn't. Yes, she does. Especially when you see her sideways. Have you seen her sideways, Bertie? That cold, pure profile? It just takes all the heart out of me. It doesn't. I tell you it does. I catch sight of it, and the words freeze on my lips. He spoke with a sort of dull despair, and so manifest was his lack of ginger and the spirit that wins to success, that for an instant, I confess, I felt a bit stymied. It seemed hopeless to go on trying to steam up such a human jellyfish. Then I saw the way. With that extraordinary quickness of mine, I realized exactly what must be done if this 
Finknoddle was to be enabled to push his nose past the judge's box. She must be softened up, I said. Be what? Softened up, sweetened, worked on. Preliminary spade work must be put in. Here, Gussie, is the procedure I propose to adopt. I shall now return to the house and lug this basset out for a stroll. I shall talk to her of the hearts that yearn, intimating that there is one actually on the premises. I shall pitch it strong, sparing no effort. You, meanwhile, will lurk on the outskirts, and in about a quarter of an hour you will come along and carry on from there. By that time, her emotions having been stirred, you ought to be able to do the rest on your head. It will be like leaping on a moving bus. I remember when I was a kid at school having to learn a poem of sorts about a fellow named Pig-something. A sculptor he would have been, no doubt, who made a statue of a girl, and what should happen one morning but that bally thing suddenly came to life. A pretty nasty shock for the chap, of course, but the point I'm working round to is that there were a couple of lines that went, if I remember correctly, She starts, she moves, she seems to feel, the stir of life along her keel. And what I'm driving at is that you couldn't get a better description of what happened to Gussie as I spoke these heartening words. His brow cleared, his eyes brightened, he lost that fishy look, and he gazed at the slug, which was still on the long, long trail with something approaching bonhomie, a marked improvement. I see what you mean. You will sort of pave the way, as it were. That's right. Spade work. It's a terrific idea, Bertie. It will make all the difference. Coo white. But don't forget that after that it will be up to you. You will have to haul up your slacks and give her the old oil, or my efforts will have been in vain. Something of his former God-helplessness seemed to return to him. He gasped a bit. That's true. What the dickens shall I say? I restrained my impatience with an effort. The man had been at school with me. Dash it, there are hundreds of things you can say. Talk about the sunset. The sunset? Certainly. Half the married men you meet began by talking about the sunset. But what can I say about the sunset? Well, Jeeves got off a good one the other day. I met him airing the dog in the park one evening, and he said, Now fades the glimmering landscape on the sight, sir, and all the air a solemn stillness holds. You might use that. What sort of landscape? Glimmering. G for gastritis. L for lizard. Oh, glimmering. Yes, that's not bad. Glimmering landscape. Solemn stillness. Yes, I call that pretty good. You could then say that you have often thought that the stars are God's daisy chains. But I haven't. I dare say not. But she has. Hand her that one, and I don't see how she can help feeling that you're a twin soul. God's daisy chain? God's daisy chain. And then you go on about how twilight always makes you sad. I know you're going to say it doesn't, but on this occasion it has jolly well got to. Why? That's just what she will ask, and then you will then have got her going. Because you will reply that it's because yours is such a lonely life. It wouldn't be a bad idea to give her a brief description of a typical home at your Lincolnshire residence, showing how you pace the meadows with a heavy tread. I generally sit indoors and listen to the wireless. No, you don't. 
you pace the meadows with a heavy tread, wishing that you had someone to love you. And then you speak of the day when she came into your life. Like a fairy princess. Absolutely, I said with approval. I hadn't expected such a hot one from such a quarter. Like a fairy princess. Nice work, Gussie. And then? Well, after that, it's easy. You say you have something you want to say to her, and then you snap into it. I don't see how it can fail. If I were you, I should do it in this rose garden. It is well established that there is no sounder move than to steer the adored object into rose gardens in the gloaming. And you had better have a couple of quick ones first. Quick ones? Snifters. Drinks, do you mean? But I don't drink. What? I never touched a drop in my life. This made me a bit dubious, I must confess. On these occasions it is generally conceded that a moderate skinful is of the essence. However, if the facts were as he had stated, I suppose there was nothing to be done about it. Well, you'll just have to make out as best you can on ginger pop. I always drink orange juice. Orange juice, then. Tell me, Gussie, to settle a bet, do you really like that muck? Very much. Then there's no more to be said. Now, let's just have a run-through to see that you've got the layout straight. Start off with a glimmering landscape. Stars God's daisy chain. Twilights make you feel sad, because mine lonely life. Describe life. Talk about the way I met her. Add fairy princess gag. Say there's something you want to say to her. Heave a couple of sighs, grab her hand, and give her the works. Right? And confident that he had grasped the scenario, and that everything might now be expected to proceed through the proper channels, I picked up the feet and hastened back to the house. It was not until I had reached the drawing-room, and was enabled to take a square look at the Basset, that I found the debonair gaiety with which I had embarked on this affair beginning to wane a trifle. Beholding her at close range like this, I suddenly became cognizant of what I was in for. The thought of strolling with this rummy specimen undeniably gave me a most unpleasant sinking feeling. I could not but remember how, often when in her company at Cannes, I had gazed dumbly at her, wishing that some kindly motorist in a racing car would ease the situation by coming along and ramming her amidships. As I have already made abundantly clear, this girl was not one of my most congenial buddies. However, a Wooster's word is his bond. Woosters may quail, but they do not edge out. Only the keenest ear could have detected the tremor in the voice as I asked her if she would care to come out for a half an hour. Lovely evening, I said. Yes, lovely, isn't it? Lovely reminds me of Khan. How lovely the evenings were there. Lovely, I said. Lovely, said the Bassett. Lovely, I agreed. That completed the weather and news bulletin for the French Riviera. Another minute, and we were out in the great open spaces, she cooing a bit about the scenery, and self replying, oh, rather quite, and wondering how best to approach the matter in hand. End of chapter 9
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.